for us this morning, we're, we're looking at 1 Peter. We're continuing. If you were here last week, we began the series in 1 Peter. And we talked about the con- context of 1 Peter in the sense that Peter is writing to Christians who are dispersed in Asia Minor. And they're struggling. They're having trials. They're having difficulties. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. And, and Peter, the letter of, uh, that Peter writes to all these believers is to remind them of three very important things. What they stand for, you know, who they are, what they stand for, and why they stand for it. Because if you don't answer those three questions, if you're a believer here this morning, if you're a person of faith this morning, if you don't understand who you are in that faith, if you don't understand what you stand for in that faith or why you even stand for it, then, then the culture around you, the temptations that you struggle with, uh, internally, externally, those things are going to be difficult for you to manage. And Peter continually in this letter reminds us of these very three critical questions, these three critical um, things that you have to wrestle with. Uh, what our identity is. If you're follower of Jesus Christ this morning, what does that mean for you? What does that make you? If I was to ask you what makes you, would you talk about your job? Would you talk about your education? Would you talk about the persons, the people you're related to, uh, the person you're married to? Is that how you relate yourself? Or do you consider yourself in, in, in the language that Peter gives about being a follower of Jesus Christ? And uh, you probably wrestled with those questions. And this morning, we're going to look at, at a passage. We're going to go through um, um, a, a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture. Um, there are a lot of commentators. When I was studying this particular passage, a lot of commentators said that this is kind of the moral and ethical basis uh, of Christianity. That if you're talking about a moral, ethical basis, this is one of the best passages uh, to come to now, I have to apologize. I'm, 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 I don't like um, giving you a data dump. Okay, I'm not very fond of giving a data dump, but I can't get around it this morning. Okay, because this passage is full of a lot of very deep theological truths, and the way you carve out this passage, if you're interested in how to understand the Bible really well, hopefully this morning will will help you do that because. In this passage this morning, Peter writes uh, five imperatives, five commands, very strong in the Greek language. And uh, we're going to hopefully bring those five um, commands to each and every one of you today. If you're wrestling what it means to be a Christian, how do you live your life as a Christian, those kinds of things. Uh, This passage is going to help crystallize that for you this morning. So here's the trick. As we read the passage every time... You see the words, you must, okay? We're going to play a little game. Every time we read the words, you must, that's the imperative. That's the command, and uh, we'll unpack it from there. Okay, are we, uh, are we good to go? Okay, okay. All right, let's start. So, think clearly and exercise self-control. I don't know about you, I'm already in trouble. Okay, thanks, Peter. There's the whole book right there. So think clearly, exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desire. You didn't know any better then. I didn't know any better. 
before Christ came into my life. Okay, number one, right? You must be obedient to God. That's the first thing, obedience to God. Now, that sounds very trite. It can sound very, you know, I know that already. But ask yourself this question. Do you really live in obedience to God? Here is Peter giving this command. You must be obedient to God. And here is the deal. Our lives are shaped by who we believe to be in charge. Our lives are shaped by who we believe is in charge. Now, how many of us, even as believers, believe that we are in control of our own lives? That we can make our own decisions. We can, you know, uh, we don't need God. How many of us struggle with obedience to God? Okay? That's a huge deal. Uh, If you're a person that believes, no, my life is my own. I make my own decisions. I'm the one that makes or breaks it. I'm the one that decides whether this is right or this is wrong. I'm the one that decides all of these things. Then you are the one that you believe is in charge. It's as simple as that. Right? So who do you believe is in charge? If you believe God is in charge and you're obedient to, to God, the decisions you make in your life are far different than the decisions you're going to make if you believe you are in charge. You know, it sounds, you know, it sounds very simple, but it's so hard for us to do. Do you know this whole obedience thing is what got Adam and Eve in trouble? Okay, it, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get any, any sort of simpler than that. God gave Adam and Eve one command, one command only. And the command was even very defined. You know, don't eat that tree. I imagine that God would have allowed them to touch it, look at it, talk about it, even smell it. They just weren't supposed to eat of it. Okay, very simple, simple command. And yet, look at the trouble we all got in over one command. Obedience to God. Okay, it's a very, very simple thing. Peter is very forward here. You need to be obedient to God. This is the, 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 the human dilemma Are we obedient to God, or do we believe that we are the ones in charge of our lives, of our destiny, of everything? Okay? And that's not to say that God doesn't give believers the ability to make decisions, to think on their own, to, you know, all all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, at the heart of the decisions you make, are you doing it for your glory, or are you doing it for God's glory? And we've said this before. Are you building a monument to yourself or are you building an altar to God? That's a whole different way that you live your life. If you're building a monument to yourself or if you're building an altar to God are two totally different things. Your life may look similar. Your life may may appear on the outside to be very much the same. But the reality is, are you being obedient to God? Okay, so very simple, simple, simple thing. Let's go to the next. But now, here he is. You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, 
You must be holy because I am holy. Now, that's a double whammy in the scripture, right? If God says it once, it's pretty serious. If God says it twice, if you're not awake, he's going to wake you up. Okay, simple as that. This is the hardest thing for Christians in our culture, in our modern day, to even wrestle with, this whole business of holiness, right? The easiest way to know if you struggle with holiness is that if you're in a crowd, I always use this example, if you're in a crowd and the crowd makes a decision, in most instances, the holy decision is not the crowd decision. That's the easiest way to say it. And right away you're saying, I don't want to be different. What is the criticism that people say? Who are you, holier than we are? How many of you have ever been accused of being holier? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that stings, doesn't it? That stings. Holiness in lifestyle. Holiness comes from... This, this idea of being separate, this idea of being different, this idea of being unique, unlike anything else, it is first and foremost used to describe God. I love the way Isaiah talks about God in, in his book. He says, God is so unique. You can't compare him to anything. You can't match him to anything else that we can ever imagine. If we're going to talk about God, we've got to talk about God as the unique one in the universe. That there isn't anything that we can match or compare him. That's why he's unanswerable to anybody. That's why he's not responsible to anybody. That's why he is morally good. That's why he has all these characteristics that make him God. That make him God. And what God prescribes for life is morally good. It may be holy, but it is morally good. And we wrestle with that. We wrestle with that. The holiness of God separates him from anything impure in life. Anything impure. That's why we have a trouble with sin. And that's why God has trouble with sin. That's why sin demands a penalty for, for God. Right, this, this issue of holiness and separateness is a call to purity in our lives. Purity is not, you know, there are words that are lost in our culture. Purity is one of them. Contentment's another one. Right? We don't like dealing with words like that. They're very difficult to wrestle with. It's an anything-goes society. It's an anything-goes culture. And, and one, of the, one of the great difficulties that you're probably asking yourself, how do I stay holy without being judgmental, legalistic, or being seen as a freak? Right? Isn't that, look, aren't, aren't those the three big ones in our lives? Let's be honest. Okay? Aren't those the things? Isn't that why we struggle with holiness? Okay? Those are the reasons why we struggle with holiness. But would it be fair to say that if you lived a holy life, that you probably would not be or you would not have gotten in the kind of messes that you got yourself in at some point in your life? Is it fair to say that? Yeah? But we don't teach... Hey, listen. 
Me too, okay? I'm, that's not a judgment statement on anybody. The reality is, each and every one of us have our own stories about holiness. And you're probably struggling with holiness because if I end up tomorrow at the office, or if I end up at school tomorrow, or if I end up with my family or anything like that, and play the holy card, I'm in trouble, right? But Peter says you must be holy. That your life has to reflect the nature and the character of God. You know what's really neat about us in the New Testament age? Here's the neat thing. And I'm doing this to encourage you, okay? That Jesus at least gave us a picture in the Gospels and in his life how we can be holy and make an impact on the world and still be part of the environment that we're in, Okay? Uh, We've said this many times before, but Jesus dealt with truth in a very real way, in a very real world, with the very real problems we all struggle with today. And yet, he maintained his holiness, so much so that they crucified him for it. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be as holy so we can crucify you. Um, Okay? As the Son of God, that was his commission to come to the earth and do that. But isn't it amazing that people were attracted to Jesus even though he demonstrated the holiness of God? You have to ask yourself, what is it that we get wrong that Jesus got right? He was a man of truth. He was a man of holiness. And crowds poured into his life to hear what he had to say because it transformed everything they thought of when it came to God, when it came to the way we live our lives. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that he did? What is it that he taught? Why is it that religious people would say to him, you are with the wrong people? And yet he was holy. Holy. So if we wrestle with it, We have to ask ourselves, what is it about us that we're not doing that Jesus did? Because don't think for a minute that you have to give up truth or to give up reaching someone or to give up serving someone or to give up being being real and practical in the life of someone to help them. Because Jesus did and yet was still holy. Was still holy. Very difficult thing for us as Christians nowadays. All right, let's keep, let's keep going, going. Holiness and lifestyle. Um, and remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. I love this. Has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as, hey, there's that word again, foreigners in the land. If you were here last week, the whole, the whole foreigner conversation. You know, reverence for God. Listen, you can be obedient to God, but not necessarily revere him. You can be, we can all have the spirit of Jonah in our lives, right? 
Um, if you know anything about the story of Jonah, God says, go preach to these people, this, 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 these outsiders of the nation of Israel. Jonah runs the other way, struggles with it. Okay? But even when he comes back, even when God gets him right on the track and he's obedient to God, he's far more belligerent to God in his obedience than he is in his reverent fear of God. That's the thing. We can be very obedient to God. We can do the right thing. But do we have the reverent fear of God? Okay? All right? Reverence. Um, Fear, to be respected. God is not to be trifled with. We can't presume upon God anything. Okay? This is is a, a... a two-edged sword that we have to think about. He has no favorites, not like the culture that, that, you know, that places people in categories, that, uh, that, that places people in tax brackets. Okay? God has no favorites. And it's interesting that he puts us in the context of foreigners in the land. Okay? We're back to this whole thing of foreigners. Um, uh, foreigners comes from the Greek word xenos. And you, you've heard of xenophobia? Xenophobia is... Or xenophobia, probably the way you say it in English. Um, that's the, the fear of foreigners, the fear of outsiders. Okay? And in the Roman culture, uh, foreigners were low on the social ladder. It, it, it was slaves, foreigners, and then the citizens of the Roman Empire. So if you were a foreigner, you didn't have certain rights. You didn't have, uh, you were discriminated against. You know, you were, you, were, you were categorized, you were classified, right? And, and, and Peter says that, that as citizens of God's kingdom, you live as foreigners and identified as foreigners in the land. Because you're considered outsiders. Um, I read two very interesting articles this week. Um, while we're on the subject of, you know, this whole morality and that, I read a very interesting article that uh, the title was, Finally Science Weighs In. Should you give it up on the first date? Okay, we're going to be really careful here, right? (laughs) Let me ask you. (laughs) Science weighs in. Should we give it up on the first date? Now, I don't know about you, but if we need science to tell us, answer a moral question on whether we should give it up on the first date, don't you think we're kind of in trouble? Like, you know, no offense, but the article goes on to say that the likelihood, if you give it up on the first date, the likelihood of that relationship lasting or being meaningful over time is greatly diminished. Now, how many of you thought that was rocket science? Like, really? No, no offense, but when we need science to validate a moral, ethical issue, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Right? Do I give it up on the... Oh, anyway. um, wow. Uh, okay, I'm going to leave that one alone. Um, here's the second article I read. Being selfish makes us happy. So long as we avoid the guilt. (laughs) Isn't that priceless? Being selfish makes us happy so long as we 
avoid the guilt. There's a how-to manual, yeah. Yeah, all right? There's, there's husbands thinking of wives right away, right? There's wives thinking of husbands right away. There's kids thinking of mom and dad right away. There are some of you who haven't been in church in a long time who are thinking about the church right away. This whole issue of guilt, right? But isn't it amazing? How many of you are saying, hey, I get that? I was fine until somebody made me aware of it. Okay? It's okay. Selfishness actually makes us happy as long as we avoid the guilt. (laughs) Okay? I think that's... Anyway. All right. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors... That's, that, that's an amazing line right there. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. Remember last week in the, in, in the earlier chapter, your faith is more precious than gold or silver? Okay? Uh, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed them to you in these last days. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Okay, enough said, right? Love. Isn't that amazing that, that, that the, 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 the most on-the-ground command that that Peter gives. It's this one command about being loving towards each other. That all the theological truth about God's great gift to us, God's great extension of giving his son, the greatest expression of love that God could possibly give to us. There's a lot. Listen, listen, there's a lot of you there saying, God could love me more by giving me more money. God could love me more by getting me out of this situation. God could love me more by getting me this job, this car, this this opportunity. God could love me more by doing all this stuff. No, God could not love you more. He's already loved you more than you could possibly imagine simply by giving you his son. Yeah, come on, that's got to have an amen somewhere. Come on. It's hot in here. Are you guys okay? Like, you know, you know? Seriously, there is nothing, there is nothing that God could give you more right now. Health, no matter, I'm sorry, no matter what, than him giving you his son. Nothing, period. Peter acknowledges that. That gift to us should relate in that gift that we give to others because of it. If we, listen, when we are unloving, it is because we have lost what God has given us. Those moments that we're uncaring, we're unloving, is because we have simply forgotten this simple truth. And Peter is saying, everything that God has done for you, that should relate in you being so overwhelmed by that gift that you should love each other with sincere hearts. Okay? If I asked you this morning, what does the world lack? Does it lack a sense of judgment and condemnation? I don't think so. Does the world lack for evil? I don't think so. Does the world lack for trials and suffering? I don't think so. 
Would it be fair to say that the world is always open to more love? Would that be fair to say? You know, as, 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 as these believers, whatever their circumstance, whatever their situation, are struggling with the trials, the, the sufferings, that their persecutions that they're going to, Peter is saying, don't let that, that is being experienced upon you, take away your ability to love others. Because we can justify our sense of unlove to others very, very easily. Very easily. Every one of us in this room has a reason and a good one not to love someone else. You have a very good reason, a very justifiable reason. It is the same justifiable reason that God had not to send his son. Okay? And that's what you have to keep in mind. I don't know about you, but, but what, 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 what literally blew my life out of the water was this, this whole idea that everything that I am, everything that I had done, in spite of it all, God still gave his son for me. And we can get so wound up in, in, in the he said, she said, they did, we did, how, you know, that we can forget this, 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 this treasure that we hold inside of us to be something to someone else that would change their lives so dramatically, that would move them so dramatically, that would touch them so transformingly, and I, I, I don't know about you, but one act can often make the difference in a person's life for a long time. One act. One act. Love each other with sincere, sincere hearts. Okay, enough said. We've got next passage to get to. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You must, right, build on a spiritual foundation, right? Peter is saying, crave this. Cry out for it. Build your lives on it. It's such an important part of what we are. Listen, I know many times we struggle with doctrine. We struggle very much with what the, you know, the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is a life that is built on truths that no other faith holds. Okay? 
Christianity in the world is ultimately unique. Everyone else wants you to work your way in favor with God. Christianity says you cannot do that, but someone greater, God himself, has sacrificed himself for you so you can have that relationship with God. That should release any, any anxiety in your life about being perfect before God because the Son of God is perfect before the Father on your behalf. Wow. Peter, this is Peter, by the way. I I get a real kick out of the fact that this is so theologically deep, and this is Peter, the guy who got himself in so much trouble with Jesus. Okay? He was always saying the wrong thing. So it's really neat to see Peter carve out this this incredible theological and, and pristine understanding of what it is to be a Christian, to what it is to live your life in faithfulness to this thing. Right? The word crave, right? To long for, to yearn, this intense desire that it that comes from the very, you know, um, by, you know a, a, little, a little Greek lesson. Um, you've ever heard people say, I hate your guts? Why, why do we say that? Right? Because the Greek word for compassion and yearning comes from guts. The, the Greek word for intestines, okay? And the yearning is so deep that it comes from the very, uh, the old, I think the old King James used to say bowels, okay? That's how deep, that's how intense this craving. And this is, this is, the, this is the, the depth and severity of the language talking about. Right? And how many of us have run into somebody that craves the word of God, that craves a relationship with God, and we even get freaked out? Right? But this is what Peter's talking about. Crave it. Desire it. Yearn for it. Long for it. An intense desire. Because once, here, once you wrestle with the incredible gift that you've been given as a believer, how can you do anything less? How can you do anything less? Who are you? What do you stand for? And why do you stand for it? What does that mean for you in your life? Listen, I know it's Soup Sunday, and I know you're all dying and starving, but I want to read one last story. Starving for milk. milk. Crave it. Crave it, okay? Um... I came across this story uh, last week, and I don't know how I'm going to relate it to this, but I just, I, I, I think it, it just, it speaks really clearly to where the world is heading and, and where, where we need to get serious. This is from the Huffington Post. Last Sunday in Britain, the first atheist church held its very first meeting at the Nave a former church-turned-performance space in Islington, North London. Okay, the first atheist church. Okay? According to the Islington Gazette, stand-up comedians Sanderson Jones and Pippa Evans, Pippa Evans founded the so-called godless church because they wanted a space where non-religious folks could commune and edify one another. Now, as I'm reading this, you're going you're to hear a lot of church language, okay? So, 
um, I'd find it very interesting. The Huffington Post UK explains that the church, dubbed Sunday Assembly, has been championed as a chance for disillusioned former believers, nostalgic atheists, and anybody searching for a sense of community to meet and turn good intentions into action. According to the Independent, about 200 worshipers showed up for the service held on January 6th, this last Sunday that just went past. The congregation focused on the theme of beginnings, deliberating over ways that success can be achieved by letting go of past failures and avoiding mental booby traps. All right. Instead of a sermon, the church invited Andy Stanton, a popular children's book author, to talk about overcoming the odds and achieving success. And instead of praying together, I love this part, those gathered were encouraged at one point to close their eyes and meditate on their fears of inadequacy and failure. With Jones taking the step as the MC, the congregation was also treated to some stand-up comedy. A rendition of Oasis's Don't Look Back in Anger was even sung during the gathering. Going forward, the Sunday Assembly is scheduled to meet the first Sunday of every month. I, I, yeah, I probably need the tape to be shut off about this point. Yeah, I'm getting real... You know, what, who are we? Who are we? And you know what? Okay, here, here is the deal. Much of what they're looking for is what the gospel gives. Isn't it interesting that they want a sense of community? They want a sense of feeling that they can move forward. They want a sense to know that they're around, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me because so much of it mimics the church. Except the stand-up comedian part. Um, oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, okay, I spoke out of turn. Okay, sorry. The <laughs> stand-up comedian part, right? But, you know, isn't it, I, I was really struck. I was really struck. Listen, there's some of you here this morning who, who have forgotten who you are. There's some of you here this morning who have forgotten what Jesus has done for you. There's some of you that have forgotten that you can't do it all on your own. There's some of you that have forgotten that you are part of a community. Some of you that have forgotten that we stand for something that is part of God's plan for the world. And when we forget those things, then we start chasing, you know, we start chasing what we desire deep within us in, in ways that are never going to be fulfilling, never going to be satisfying, never going to give us what we really need. And we're seeing that experience all around the world. Bless you this week as you go into your life groups and you study this passage. I pray that, uh, that you've been challenged this morning. I just want to pray. 
and, and again, remind you. Um, next week, we're going to look at the, at the topic of who we are as believers. Peter does a beautiful job. But for this week, uh, I hope you're wrestling with those questions continually. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your amazing word and the challenges that come into our lives each and every day as we try to live in faithfulness to you. And Lord, there is just so much that, that happens in the world around us that can cause us to stumble. Sometimes it's difficult to stand because we say, what's the use? And we're not unlike so many other believers historically before us. Even for the apostle Peter, who was writing to a large group of believers who are suffering from things that we possibly can't imagine in this day and age. But here he is reminding them once again of who they are, what they have to stand for, and why they should stand for it. And Lord, often we just look at this day, this moment, and forget what's coming ahead for us because of the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus came so willingly, sacrificed himself so that we can hold to the truths and the promises that Peter explains in this letter because those never change historically. So Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would bless us and I pray that that there would be somebody here who's, who's been touched by the message and would even find themselves in the prayer room after the service to ask and to be prayed for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.